Please turn with me to page 772. It's Obadiah, but you might not know where that is. That's okay. You can look in the table of contents. We are and find it without shame. It's only one page in the Old Testament. We started this series on the minor prophets, and we just preach through uh, book by book and chapter by chapter. And nothing says Mother's Day like Obadiah, right? Isn't that what you think of when you think of Mother's Day? We've started these little books at the end of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets, not because they're unimportant, but because they're small. They cover a large portion of history, several hundred years before the coming of Jesus. And we're taking three weeks to look at this small but powerful and very intense prophecy from Obadiah. Here's the background story. There were, as you know, the father of the Israelites was Abraham. He had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the father of the Israelites, and Esau was the father of the Edomites. That's the little nation that we're reading about here that that was located at Petra uh, outside of Amman, Jordan. And these Edomites, though they were cousins, though they were cousins of the Israelites, On the two significant occasions when uh, Jerusalem was being attacked by foreigners and the city was plowed under and the citizens were being mistreated, instead of helping, they were passive. And in fact, they waited for the fugitives as they came out of the city and they hacked them down at the crossroads. It made God angry. And God is chastising, warning if not uh, warning that this could come, if not rebuking them for already having done it, God is angry when people are treated this way. And He writes it to the Israelites because He wants them to hear because they were also capable of doing the same thing. And He writes to us because we are as well. Let's look for God's lesson for us today and especially wait on the good news of the gospel, even from this little Old Testament book called Obadiah. Because it's so small, it only has one chapter. So we're looking at verses 10 through 14 and then 19 through 21, page 772 in your pew Bibles. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Don't gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their return. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Then the conclusion, which we'll study next week, verse 19. Then the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. 
And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see beautiful things even in this this fiercely loving portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> Michael Orr was, is one of our Memphis sons. Had a distinguished football career at Great Briarcrest Academy. Went on from there to Ole Miss and then played for the Ravens and for... Uh, Charlotte and for the and for um, and for the Titans before he retired 2017 he was an offensive tackle but he didn't go to Briarcrest originally as a football player he was sort of discovered there and also discovered his great his was his great need he was in desperate situation he was in desperate need of a home someone who would care for him he needed rescue from a place where, in a neighborhood where he it was dangerous. He didn't have much hope of breaking that cycle that he was in. At Briarcrest, his uh, people discovered his need, and the Tui family, Leanne and Sean Tui, eventually took him into their home, eventually adopted him. He became uh, a brother to their natural-born children, and their very own child. There's a scene in that, um, in, that, in that movie made about him, The Blind Side, so named because of the evolution of the offensive tackle position where, where coaches eventually discovered that their very expensive quarterbacks were getting killed from the blind side when they're getting ready to throw a pass. If it's a right-handed quarterback, he goes like this, and he doesn't see who's coming in the back, and uh, they were getting wiped out. And so they, they, they developed the offensive tackle position into that position that was dedicated to protecting the quarterback, the blind side. Michael was such a big guy, they said he's going to be a perfect blind side tackle for us. But in the movie, anyway, when he first comes onto the field and they're practicing, he didn't quite get the idea. He didn't quite get the idea of football or what his job was. And he's a gentle man and uh, didn't want a lot of conflict. And so people would come rushing through, the linebacker or whatever would come through, and he would just move out of the way and not wanting to interrupt his flow. The, the coach would yell and scream at him and say, you got you got a block, you got a block. He didn't quite get it. So... Sandra Bullock playing Leanne Tui anyway, uh, imagines that uh, she walks out on the field to the consternation of the coaches and she storms out on the field and she says, Michael, look at me. Here's the idea. This quarterback, this is your family. It's your job to protect him. He's family. That resonated with him. It was, it had become intuitive that you protect family. Why? Because he'd experienced it. I heard Leanne Tui give a lecture uh, a number of years ago, and, and she said, uh, she challenged everyone, when you see a need, you move toward it. 
especially if you're a Christian. When you see a need, you move toward it. You move toward people in need. He experienced that. Michael Orr experienced what it was to be proactively loved, to be fiercely loved, to be fiercely protected, and he became a fierce protector. Why are these words so ultimate, so ferocious by God? Because he is a fierce lover. He's a fierce parent. He loves us protectively. And he especially loves and comes to the aid of the vulnerable. And he calls his people to do the same. And when they don't do it, he warns them. He threatens them because he wants more for them. That's what we find in this passage. Here is, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the relentless love of God. Our feelings ebb and flow. Our feelings come and go, C.S. Lewis said. But God's love is, is relentless. It is always pursuing and protective. And he calls his people to represent it wherever they find need. Not to do so, not to be proactively loving, especially for the vulnerable, is to start down a road, a deadly progression of unbrotherliness, I said in your in your bulletin, but maybe unneighborliness. We could be even stronger and say, according to Jesus, it is to pursue a road to murder, virtual murder. And then it is to invite condemnation, it is to invite judgment. To pursue that way is to invite the caustic wrath of God. Why is that so Why is God so protective? Because every human being is made in the image of God. And God has announced his protection of the human race in his 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 laws and in his decree to Noah after the flood. If anyone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why does he say that? Because he wanted to redeem from the human race an innumerable host. He's preserving the Jewish race here through which the Messiah would come. And he calls us likewise to be sometimes fierce or ferocious in our guarding, our standing up for the abused image of God in someone who is vulnerable, and especially to do so with a testimony to the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. Now, I say it's a, it's a progression toward that kind of hate, actually, if it begins with passivity. It begins ever so slightly. It's helpful to trace your, when you've gotten yourself in a real mess, when a, when a real mess has developed as a result of sin, it's helpful to trace it all the way back to the beginning. Where did it begin? And it can seem harmless enough. It was so with the Edomites. It seemed harmless enough. All they did was stand aloof. What's the harm of being passive, you might say, if, if you don't know what the situation is, if you're not sure of all the facts, if you're not sure if you really want to trouble your life by getting involved. But notice what God says in verse 11, One, on that day you stood aloof, on that day strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates. How could you let that happen, he says? How could you stand aloof? 
when you saw any human being being mistreated, abused uh, in that way, much less one with whom you shared common blood. How could you be passive? There are only two reasons that we are ever passive when we see someone in need. One is we are, we are afraid. Another is that we're apathetic. We're afraid or we just don't care. Now, it's, it's not a sin to be afraid, but it's a sin to be cowardly because of your fear. The, the Christian is never given an excuse to be cowardly or to be apathetic. No, you say, I'm not, a naturally, I'm not a naturally brave person. If you are a naturally brave person, there's something wrong with you. If you're a normal human being, you are naturally afraid. But the Bible nevertheless calls us to lean into danger when someone is in need. And so we act, we step up, we act when someone is in need. Even if our knees are trembling, we do so in response to the love that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who sweated drops of blood for us, who who didn't face death with glee, but he faced it with his face like a flint because he loved us. He was not cowardly to shrink away from loving us actively when we were in the grip of the devil. And then, of course, apathy is not appropriate for a Christian given that God was moved to love us while we were yet sinners. Where do you see someone in need? Step in and act, even before you have all of the facts, even before you know everything, even before you know if you're going to to win or not, or, or whether you're going to even survive. When you see an image bearer of God in a vulnerable place, being treated unjustly, unfairly, a power being exerted over them, an inappropriate way, stand up for them. It's the, it's the poor person being mistreated in our, uh, in our city, perhaps. It's the, a person of a, another race who's being ignored and passed over. Someone who doesn't have the same social uh, 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 network that we do. Someone who's being falsely accused at work. Someone in your locker room who's being made fun of. The, the person who is, whose lifestyle choices are repulsive to you, but nevertheless are being denied basic human rights. The person denied a pathway to citizenship in our city, even though we work them like horses. The person who's experiencing a different standard because they're related to someone else and they can't break out of their cycle. Where is someone you need to stand for. That mother who has an unexpected pregnancy, being scorned, rejected, that child in the womb, that child, that, that adult with special needs being dismissed as someone as less than inherently dignified, that class of people who are being denied fair treatment, You must not ever be silent. We must never be passive. 
We stand in the gap. We step toward the need even before we find out all the facts and we can adjust to the facts later. But when someone in that moment is an image bearer of God, even if they have gotten themselves in a pickle by their own doing, we stand up for them as one who is inherently dignified by God. I learned this in a kind of humorous way a number of years ago when I was a a coach in my my son's uh, elementary basketball league. I was the assistant coach because I'm not a worthy coach. I can carry the basketballs and I can keep stats. But my coach, my head coach was a basketball genius. We came from very different parts of town, very different backgrounds, but we loved each other. And one uh, day after a game, I was being accosted by, you know, those very well-meaning parents who get wrapped up in their, their first graders who are destined to be NBA stars and you don't appreciate it the way they do. That was one of those parents. And uh, he was giving me a tongue lashing in a very public setting for not playing his son enough. Well, I hadn't checked my records, and I had a very detailed system, and I didn't have a defense for him. But then I caught at the corner of my eye my head coach running across the room, shoved himself in between me and this man, and he started giving him a tongue lashing I know he has never experienced before. He whipped him up one side and down the other with his tongue to the point this man shriveled and slinked out of the gym thoroughly thoroughly beaten up by the tongue. And then my coach turned to me and he said, so what was that about? <laughs> I said, what do you mean, what was that about? You didn't know what that was about when you, you, you did all that to him? No, I have no idea. I said, what if I deserved it? He was talking to me about not playing his kid enough. And I said, I didn't check my records. Maybe he's right. Maybe I don't owe him an apology. He said, if you owe him an apology, you can give an apology later. All I saw was my fellow coach was being treated shamefully in public. That's not going to happen. You can apologize to me later. We can make up for what you did wrong. That's that. But no coach of mine is going to be treated like that. When you see someone in a vulnerable position, say something. Do something. You have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't, here's what happens. Here's the outline as we find it in the rest of the text. The next is, if you're passive and you say, you know, I need to make sure I know the facts first. I don't need to get involved in this. Let's let it work out organically. We love that word. Let's just wait and see. Let's pray about it. What happens when we start with the first step of passivity? We move to superiority or profess superiority. Verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother. Literally, don't look down your nose at your brother. What can happen? We begin to justify our passivity by saying, you know, probably they deserved it. Uh, or they, they should have done this or they should have done that. I'm sure they did something wrong. They, they should have been more responsible. They should have been born in a different part of town. They should have been born with a different IQ. 
They should have been brought up in, a, in, a, in, in some place that's more respectable. Is that really what we think? And then it gets more egregious. You notice as he moves through verse 12, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their end. Do not boast in the day of distress. It moves from passivity to superiority to mockery. Huh. Must be terrible to be in that situation. Must be terrible to be someone like that. Or maybe even active shaming. Shaming people with our words or speaking shamefully and mockingly of them. People who bear the image of God. God warns in James chapter 3 that we must not, we must not use our tongues to abuse someone, to abuse someone else, to cut someone else, to speak falsely about them behind their back, to gossip about them, to cut them down because, James says, they are made in the image of God. To attack them in that way with our tongue is to attack God Himself. And inevitably, it leads then to this tragedy in uh, verses 13 and 14, where whatever this historical situation was, they stood at the crossroads and not only thought themselves superior, but aided in their destruction. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Even if you don't literally kill someone, Jesus warns us, doesn't he? That when we begin with passivity, even to the point of saying, thou raka, that you fool, that is, you're someone who is not worthy of my attention or worthy of my protection, Jesus warns it's incipient murder. When someone is being dealt with unjustly, and unfairly, we must stand for them. With knees trembling, with fumbling words, even while we find out more facts, we stand for the image of God and stand ultimately for the redemptive power of the gospel. The gospel doesn't go forth by passivity. The gospel goes forth with powerful, proactive love. Not to do so, not to do so is to invite not only this kind of, this deadly progression, it is to invite ultimate judgment. Failing to stand for someone who is vulnerable will inevitably come back on us individually as a, as a group, as a family, as a church. There's a famous quote by Martin Niemuller that is in the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Martin Neumuller was a, a Lutheran pastor in, during the rise of Nazism, and in the early days, he supported Nazism. It was good for the economy, after all, and things are getting better economically, and, and those people who are being singled out and, and being uh, uh, rounded up, well, you know, they've, they've had their success long enough, or maybe it is sort of diluting to our success as a people, and he said nothing. Eventually, the Nazis turned on him too and made him a prisoner for seven years. 
just because he was a Christian. He says, nothing like prison to clear your mind. And there is this famous quote in the Holocaust Museum by Martin Niemuller. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Not only did Niemuller recognize uh, his passivity had, uh, was sinful, he confessed it. He said in his uh, great book, Guilt and Hope, he said whenever he had a chance to meet a Jew after that experience, he said to him something like this, dear friend, I stand in front of you, but we cannot get together for there is guilt between us. I have sinned and my people have sinned against thy people and against thyself. How so? By passivity. By my being passive, he said, I was effectively an anti-Semite. It's not just that we can be guilty of of, of not loving certain classes or races of people. When we fail to give proactive and courageous love to those being treated unjustly or in a vulnerable place, it's not just anti this or that, it is anti God whose image they bear. Jesus says it is anti Christ. How do I know? Because think about the judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25. On that day, he said, there will be those gathered to him, and they'll be divided as sheep and goats. And I'll ask those, I'll ask those, why did you not serve me? When you saw me hungry, when you saw me uh, uh, thirsty, when you saw me in prison, when you saw me a stranger, why did you not help me? And in that day, they'll say, well, we didn't see you. And he'll say, yes, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. God reserves some of his strongest words for those who remain passive and, and, and head down this road of deadly progression, of failing to stand and speak up for the vulnerable. He says uh, th- that uh, conflict Conflict is an abomination in Proverbs 6, 19. It must be leaned into. A passive Christian is not a Christian brother, 1 John 4. He lists this kind of, this kind of um, brotherly, anti-brotherly sin as a form of witchcraft in Galatians chapter 5. And those who participate in the dividing of the people of God, he identifies them as those trying to divide Christ himself. Disastrous results. But when we participate in or do not participate, when we participate in division or we do not participate in healing or reconciliation, we allow the devil to get a foothold, Ephesians 4, 
We can grieve those who carry forth the gospel to the point that those who are unbelievers will not hear the truth. So he gives elders and pastors uh, and uh, the elders of a city the responsibility to look out for those who cause division, to rebuke those who cause division two times and then to have nothing to do with them, to rebuke sharply those who bring ruin into households. Fierce words. But these are the fierce words of a loving father. And what John Calvin called gospel threats. They're not just threats that are thrown out there to make you feel bad, but these are the threats, the warnings, the exhortations of God to Christians. And when Christians hear them, they rise up and say, yes, I have been passive. I'm going to be active now. Or to those who are not Christians and have been ignoring this, this command that should be intuitive to them as image bearers of God, they will hear it. This is God's desire. They will hear it and repent and turn to the Lord. That's exactly what we find at the end of Obadiah spoiler alert. At the end of the book of Obadiah, I read all of these place names that would not be natural to the Israelites of thinking they were going to come around to the Lord. But as we trace the history of missions, we can find Christian churches set up in each of these places that are mentioned. The way God gets control of some of the way, the way he wins and a conquest with somebody is to turn their hearts back to Him and so that their hearts begin to resonate with His, which in the eternal counsels, thank God, were not passive. When God looked down the corridors of time and saw that we were going to, saw that we were going to fall, that we were going to rebel in the, in the garden, when we were going to take His gifts and turn them into idols, they could have said, let's just, let's just do away with them, start all over. Wouldn't that be a lot easier? But God instead said, he so loved the world. He so loved his enemies that he said, there's only one thing we can do, son, you've got to go. You've got to go. You've got to move into their neighborhood. You've got to take up all of their infirmities and endure their diseases and allow their stripes to fall on you. You've got to live in their place. You've got to die in their place, even receive my judgment in their place. You can't be, we can't be passive. We have to go after them and redeem them and make them not just non-enemies, non-combatants. We've got to make them sons and daughters of God. And then he entrusts that mission to us. And he says, I so dignify you that I give you the Holy Spirit that will empower you and enable you to rise up against your fears and stand for the vulnerable in the name of Jesus, that people look on your love and say, what kind of people have a love like that? Several years ago, I read a story that resonated with me because it occurred on a riverbank. You know enough about rivers. We know enough about rivers here that when the waters recede, they leave some 
places where it's very dangerous to walk. They can become like quicksand. You could get buried there. Two little boys went out to play at the river and uh, didn't come home in time for supper. Their parents got worried. They went after them and they, they saw to their horror that one little boy, they, they saw one son and his head was just above the sand. He was still breathing just barely. They were relieved. They dug down. When they released his chest, he could breathe again. And they said, uh, where, where is your brother? Where is your brother? He said, I'm standing on his shoulders. When we started sinking, he got me on top of his shoulders. He pushed me up so that I could breathe above the sand. It's what Jesus has done for us. He loved us enough to put his life in our place. He wasn't passive. He leaned into his fears and he pursued us. And he's entrusted the same to us with this glorious prospect that on that great judgment day, when we are asked, or when he tells us, you visited me, you stood up for me, you fed me, you interceded for me, you intervened. You are not passive. And we say, when did I ever see you? In those moments, when you did it for the least, you did it for me. Thank you. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so relentlessly, fiercely loving us, giving us the pattern of Jesus himself and so many saints who have gone before us, even the fierce love of mothers. We pray that we would not forget it, but we would respond to that grace and love and imitate it in such a way that others would see and embrace our glorious Savior. In whose name we pray, God's people said, amen.